0: Okay, hello and welcome to another Pyro seminar. Uh, Just recently I put up the seminars for the next four months. I'm gonna run over them very briefly. Um, I'm gonna try and keep on top of things rather than just announcing month to month, I wanna kind of set a number of them up. So next month is called Atheist Atonement. And I'll be in Belfast for that. So if anyone is in Belfast, Uh, just let me know and I'll put you on the guest list for that. Uh, We're going to look at uh, the idea of atonement, but from a different perspective than the usual atonement theories that we've heard. Then in November, weaponizing discontent, which is going to look at exploring how do we take the discontent in our individual lives and in our communal lives and actually mobilize that for something good. And then finally, uh, in December, When Myth Meets Matter, where I'm going to talk about uh, Advent and bring in some C.S. Lewis and philosopher Shizek. So that's the next few months um, up to Christmas. Atheist Atonement, Weaponizing Discontent, and When Myth Meets Matter. But today I wanted to take a little um, you know, a break from the usual and recommend uh, this book, Christ and the End of Meaning. Uh, You'll have heard me talk about it a number of times because we've just spent nine weeks studying this. Uh, I've taken a group of people through each chapter and I've given everybody uh, who's watching this a copy of this book. So just go on to my Patreon and under posts, um, you'll find it. I can't remember what it's called. Maybe it'll just be called Christ and the End of Meaning and you can get hold of the PDF. So I want to encourage you if you're um, board or whatever to take the book up, have a read. So what I thought I would do in this Paro seminar is just kind of like give an introduction to the book, give an overview of what Hessert's trying to do, so that uh, it might be a little bit easier when you come to reading it. So the book itself, uh, you know, it's from it's like it's like you know 25 years old, something like that now. Uh, Paul Hessert has passed away. He died around I think 10 years ago. Um, and it's not a very well-known book, but it's a book that I discovered um, through a recommendation. And I feel like it really connects with many of the themes that I'm interested in. So to understand the book and to approach it, uh, Paul Hessert starts with this notion of a circle of reality. He says that, uh, you know, all of us operate with a certain, within a certain frame. Uh, It's a very natural frame, and the frame is kind of there is the actual, how we're living our lives, what we're doing, and there is the ideal, what we would like. Um, So we live between the is and the ought. So in life, whenever we think of a better society or a better us or a better relationship, we are thinking of the way the world ought to be. So at a very simple level, there is the is and there is the ought. And in this frame, whether you're conservative, liberal, you're Democrat, you're Republican, we all have this type of framework. And meaning describes our desire for the ought. A meaningful life is a life that is dedicated to the pursuit of that thing that we want. And power is the force that gets us there. That's a very simple kind of like understanding of what he calls a circle of reality we have the is we have the ought we have a separation between those two and we have a meaningful life insofar as it's directed towards the ought and power is whatever it is that kind of helps us move towards it Now, hesser wants to say that religion um is used to legitimate this type of framework and um, religions in their kind of like historical forms usually fit within that framework. They give us an idea of the world as it is and an idea of the world as it should be. Um, it tries to encourage people to move from the is to the ought. But Hessert's claim is that there is this radical message at the heart of Paul the Apostle that critiques this entire frame, this way of thinking. And this is what he's doing in the book. Now, to understand this, um, he talks about the universality of guilt within this frame. Uh, So basically, guilt is the name that is given to the experience of not getting what you want to get getting the, not getting the ideal. So when we fall short of an ideal, we feel, we feel guilty about it. We feel like, oh, you know, we're not living up to our potential. We're not getting to where we would like to be. Now for Hesert, guilt is not some small part of our lives. You know, I feel guilty because I didn't fool my mum or something like that. But guilt is a fundamental structure of this way of existing. It's fundamental, it's always there, and this is called condemnation. So guilt is kind of like the, uh, the contingent aspect. I feel guilty because I could have given money to that organization, that charity, and I didn't. And condemnation is the sense in which you feel like you can never escape this lack. You can never escape this sense that there is a better world, a better me, a better something that is out there. So Hesert says within this frame, guilt and condemnation are universal features of life that often manifest themselves in anxiety, uh, in angst, in, in, in feeling um, insecure, and um, all sorts of psychological ways. Um, and for Hesert, the, this collection of works we call the New Testament is centered around the attempt to free us from this guilt and condemnation. That that's actually kind of the core, which is what I think kind of Luther understood. Luther felt that there was something at the core of these texts that was attempting to offer freedom from condemnation, freedom from this sense of of always falling short. That is, you know, it can be there in a strong way or in a weak way in our lives, but somehow it permeates existence. Um Now of course, uh, lots more is go- or, you know is going on in the texts than just that. Uh, but there's something about for for someone like Luther the idea that if you can be freed from guilt and condemnation, you will become a healthier, happier, more productive person, a person who is more engaged in life um, and you know kind of healthier individual or a healthier community is one that is freed from this sense of condemnation. So Hesert says, yeah, okay, we can understand this not in any supernatural way, just in a very simple way that guilt and condemnation results from the very natural way that a self exists between what is and what ought to be. And that every time we live, even if you're reading self-help books, self-help books are always saying, you know, how to become a better person. And they're giving you steps to do that. So the self is, is trying to get somewhere. And what happens is you, that goal is always receding. For Heser, you never get that. You never get to the thing that will make you feel good. In fact, the more you demand of yourself, the more sacrifices you make, the more demanding the ought becomes. Uh, for Freud, this is called the superego. The more you try to feed the superego, the better you try to be, just the more guilty you become. You feed it, and it just gets bigger and bigger. Um, so Hessert's seeing this structure as, as, as something that you cannot get over through self will. You can't overcome it through what he calls the archetype of the hero. The hero is the one who gets to the place they ought to be through self-determination, through grit, through hard work. And this is in a sense a, a character that we can admire, someone who is able to go out there and get what they need and get what they want. So it's a heroic gesture. But Hesert says the hero will always feel This doesn't work. Um, and every time we try to achieve the ideals, we end up kind of disappointed to some extent, or briefly happy, and then you know, the next day everything's bad again. Um, that we can never, never get to that place of wholeness and completeness. And one of the things Hesert says is, although we exist within this framework, we don't experience the framework as oppressive. What we experience as oppressive is not getting what we want within the framework. So say within a given frame, you want to be rich. Uh, you don't experience the desire to be rich as oppressive. You experience not being rich as oppressive. Or if you, you know, want to you know, travel the world and meet new people and be self-sufficient, again, you don't, you don't experience that desire as oppressive. You just experience it as oppressive when you're not able to do it. But Kasser is saying this very structure is what is ultimately oppressive. And it's this very structure that we need to be freed from. And he feels that the term Christ crucified is the theological term for breaking this circle of reality apart, where we no longer live between is and ought. We're no longer striving for something that will fix us, that will make us whole, that will will, will, will make everything Peaceful and harmonious. That actually, that very desire is what causes the conflict in our lives in the first place. Um, and so, in in one, I'm going to just, by the way, pick out certain things that he says, like little uh, fragments. And one of the fragments in a chapter, he talks about coveting. Uh, you know, we think again about coveting as you really want something that you don't have, and like you're you're dissatisfied, and you're desiring it, and it's it's your neighbor's property, it's something that, that you don't have. That's coveting. But again, Hesert wants to say coveting is not some individual thing that you happen to do. It's again, built into the very structure of reality, structure of the self. We covet when we want something that we don't have, that we feel incomplete, and we then postulate something that will fix that. This is again coveting. This is a universal problem that we all feel, that we all feel the burden of. But Christ crucified, he says, is this interesting thing because in religious terms, it is meaningless and it's the representation of the loss of power. Uh, Signs and wonders generally. Um, are signs of the coming kingdom. They, they show us that we're on the right track. They support us, they legitimize us. But this symbol of a crucified God makes no sense. It's kind of like a square triangle. It, in, in terms of what we think a Messiah or a God would do, we would not think that a Messiah would do this. So he's saying we have to re- return to this crazy symbol um, that is at the center of Christianity, a symbol of the death of God. Uh, not a God who comes with a sword, but a God who dies on a cross. Not a God of power, but a God of weakness. And Paul like, really wants to, to kind of like uh, help us experience the, the scandal of that. It is a type of sign that is against signs. It's a type of wonder that is against wonders. Because usually like the sign of Exodus, where Moses leads the people out of slavery, where the, 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 the waters part, is like a sign of God is with the people. It's a sign that you're on the right tracks. It's a sign that you're going in the right direction. But this isn't like that. This is kind of a sign that everything is finished. It's like nihilism, this, this nihilistic moment where God, the highest being, dies. So it's kind of the ultimate punk. It's an absurdist moment. Punk is kind of this movement that isn't so much a new musical form. When it arrived, it was more a challenge to what we thought about music, to how we conceptualize what music was. In the same way, Christ crucified confines all of our notions of what a god or religion is about. It doesn't legitimize things. It kind of like... uh, it doesn't have meaning. It's meaningless and it's powerless. And Hesser says that is what's so fascinating about this, that when you embrace the idea of Christ crucified, what you're really doing is you're embracing a type of nihilism, a type of loss of all meaning, loss of your support, um, a sense of kind of turning the lights out, uh, losing the compass that's been directing you in your life. Uh, and this sounds, terrifying it sounds like total chaos but Hesert wants to say this is a good thing this is why I call the seminar be optimistic expect chaos because this chaos and this nihilism Hesert thinks is actually the key to a different form of life and this is a key to understanding what is going on in the gospels so for example Hesert says that well he says what we do is we interpret Christianity in relation to the circle of reality. We interpret Christianity in light of the is and the ought, and meaning and power, but Christianity breaks free from that. So often he uses terms in inverted commas, and when he's doing that he's saying this is the religious notion of the term. This is the term as it's used within the circle of reality. And then when he drops the inverted commas, he's saying this is the term in its radicality. So to give you an example, because you'll come across this multiple times in the book, uh, he'll say grace. Grace, in inverted commas, which is the popular religious way that we use the term, means that you, know, you haven't got to your ideal. You've, you've let yourself down. You've let somebody else down, but it's okay. Right? And, and it can be okay for like one of three reasons. Okay? You didn't mean it. Okay, you did something bad, but it wasn't your intention, so we'll show you grace, don't worry about it. Or, listen, you did something wrong and you knew you were doing something wrong, but don't worry about it, we're gonna give you a second chance, or a third chance, or a fourth chance. Or finally, grace can mean, listen, what you did was bad, but it wasn't that important, don't worry about it, right? You know, just keep on going on with your life. Those are ways that we use this term grace. Each of them fits within the circle of reality. It's saying you fell short, it's okay, either because you didn't mean it or because we're gonna give you a second chance or because it wasn't that important. But Hesert says, no, 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 grace is not something that operates within the circle of reality. Grace is what ruptures the circle of reality. To experience grace, is to experience that there's nothing you ought to do, there's nothing you need to do. It's not that you fell short and you can get there again, if you get back on the horse and, and try again. It's like, no, you don't have to do anything. You're fine the way you are, or you're not fine the way you are, and that's okay. You're accepted. Grace is this experience that you accept that you're accepted, and for Hessert, that means that you are broken free from this idea of a ought. You're broken free from this striving for something. And therefore, you're broken free from guilt and condemnation. And this is key because for Hessert, guilt and condemnation, you can't get rid of it in normal terms. You can't get rid of it within the circle of reality. All you can do is internalize it and hate yourself or externalize it and hate someone else right? For, oh, they're the reason why I can't get the ideal. They're the reason why society's not working. Or I'm the reason, right? So you either hate yourself or you hate another. You can't get rid of the guilt. You can just basically internalize it or throw it out onto a scapegoat, onto another. But for Heser, grace is the way to, to be freed from it. When you experience grace, you experience the loss of the need to get to somewhere that will make everything fine. And therefore, you lose the guilt for not getting there. You lose the coveting, something that you can't have, and you learn to be. Uh, and, and one of the things that Hesser does later on in the book is he says, okay, selfhood is connected with this is and this ought. To be a self... Is to, you know, have these desires and these wants and these the, the always looking to the future, um, uh, but then Hessert contrasts this with soul. He says, when you embrace this grace, when this grace occurs in your life, you lose selfhood, and you become soulful. And he's he's using he says we've 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 lost the understanding of the word soul, because Um, it's connected with like supernatural stuff and like the personality that you can't find in your body, but it's there, whatever, or the the eternal part of yourself. But Heser is saying, well, no, in the biblical sense, the word soul is closer to, and he uses the example of the way soul is used in the kind of black community in America. Um, I remember in New York hearing this term as well, soul. Um, And in, in the black community, from what I can tell, Uh, someone who has soul is someone who has this real depth. They are able to be comfortable in their skin. They have been able to um, accept themselves and their life, even though a lot of it has probably not been good, but they've been able to turn that into something productive. So a self is trying to get from A to B, from the is to the ought, but someone with soul has this depth, it's not like a, a horizontal line that you're on. You know, you're here and you want to get to here, and mean, that's the meaningful place. And power gets you there. The person with soul has has it's hard, It's vertical. They have this connection with a depth that makes them comfortable in their skin. They still desire. They still want, but it's no longer comforting. It's no longer this desire. This thing that I am incomplete until I get to this point. That's, that's all gone. And so Heser is saying in this book that how, he's trying to kind of answer the question of like, what does it mean to move from selfhood to soulfulness? What does it mean to be freed from the shackles of guilt and condemnation? What does it mean to experience radical grace? Not a cheap grace that is actually within this world of the circle of reality that's just um a way of saying, oh, I give it a second chance, but a radical grace that breaks you free from the striving after something where you always feel incomplete. So you either turn it against yourself or you turn it um, against somebody else. And this he calls sainthood. He says the hero is the one who strives to grasp, who uses self-will and self-determination in order to try to get what, what the ideal. But in contrast, the saint is the one who gives up grasping. They let go of this self-will and self-determination and this driving force to get somewhere. The saint and the hero in some ways can look the same because sometimes they've both got great ideals and they're, in a the sense, of they're, they're, uh, they're people who have a sense of right and wrong, etc. But the saint is, is one who is comfortable, who has soul who has given up the grasping of things. And in that giving up, they experience kind of like a health that comes with that. Now, Paul the Apostle always wrestled with this because there's these verses in the Bible that talk about, well, what if you experience this grace? And what if you get rid of the law that's telling you you should do something and you're able to just be? Does that not mean that you'll just do whatever you want? right? Is that that not a license to just go crazy? But Paul is trying to say to the people of his day, no, that when you give up striving, you can experience grace and experience the fact that you don't have to change. That's whenever change becomes really possible. Now, all of this stuff, if you've been following my work, you'll have heard it in different ways because in a sense, what I'm trying to do is very similar to what Hesert's doing. I'm just trying to put it into his language. His language of the hero in contrast, in contrast to the, 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 the saint. Um, his notion of the self in contrast to the soul. Uh, his notion of cheap grace, grace and in inverted commas with radical grace. Um, his idea of Christ crucified is not something that solidifies our world of meaning. And our world of power, but rather is that which challenges this very structure of reality and invites us to let go of that and embrace the unknowing, the the complexity, the darkness, the dark night of the soul, uh, the cloud of unknowing, and enter into that. Um, let me see what else will I say in relation to this. Um, yeah, I mean, this, this move, um, uh, it, it, it transforms how we think about things like forgiveness. Again, forgiveness within the circle of reality is saying to people, don't worry about going wrong. You know, you'll, you'll get another go at it, you've got another chance, I'll give you another chance. But Hesert is saying, oh, and forgiveness basically is, if you say sorry, then you're forgiven. So forgiveness comes, or repentance comes first, and then forgiveness. But again, Hester is saying, well, what if forgiveness comes first? What if the radical message of the gospel is you're forgiven? And as you're able to accept that, to be forgiven simply means you don't have to do anything, right? And as you experience that forgiveness in your life, then repentance happens. So repentance isn't the prerequisite of forgiveness in this radical sense. It is in our everyday sense. In our everyday sense, you know, you say sorry, and a person says, it's okay. But in this radical sense, we are already forgiven. We just don't know it. We just haven't embraced it. We haven't, we haven't been able to accept that. But as we're able to accept that in our being, then, the change begins to happen. So that's what like Hessert is trying to argue, is actually the point where you don't have to do anything, where you experience that grace and that forgiveness in a radical way, is actually the precondition for seeing real change uh, in your life, to experience that at some level. Now, one other part of this I'll, I'll throw out um, is that for Hessert, he argues that faith and nihilism are thus incredibly closely intertwined. Because nihilism is also the rejection of meaning and power. A nihilist is someone who also experiences Christ crucified in the sense that they experience the rupture of their life, the rupture of their their whole way of thinking about the world. Maybe it's because they lost a job or they uh, got divorced or or they, they got some disease. And for a person, whenever their life begins to fall apart, they begin to see the, the structure of reality for what it is, and they begin to get freed from it. Now what most people do is they simply move from one circle of reality to another, so when one world starts to collapse, they find another circle of reality. Maybe one religion isn't working for a person, so they embrace another religion. They move from one circle to another, but the nihilist is one who doesn't move from one circle of reality to another. The nihilist is the one who says, no, all circles of reality are contingent. They try to experience that loss of meaning and loss of power that is connected with Christ crucified. But then Hessert says, well, the one difference, the one difference between faith and nihilism is that faith embraces this. It says, Abba to this experience, which means trusts. It trusts this experience of the loss of meaning. It goes into it, it celebrates it, rather than seeing this as you know nothingness and terrible. It, it moves in. So now faith isn't a set of beliefs. Again, that's faith in inverted commas where you believe something with insufficient evidence. Faith is this wholehearted entering into this unknowing and this place of the loss of meaning, and saying yes to that, and trusting in it. So resurrection then becomes the form of life that results from this embrace of death. It's living the death of God. It's where God becomes, in a sense, part of the community of believers. We're in this taking responsibility for your life, seeing the contingency of existence, giving up the ideals, um, becoming soulful, giving up grasping. In that very experience, um, that is that is faith. That that embrace of this breaking down of everything, and in accepting it, this is a way of embracing a rich life, a deep life, and a life that is actually. Um, uh, one that is enviable, if you meet someone who actually lives like this, they are enviable because they are very comfortable in their own being. As I say, you still desire, you still work for the good, you do all of these things, but not from a lack, which is the within the circle of reality, you're always lacking, you're always trying to move to some ideal, but rather you act from a place of fullness, you act, well, you act from a place of being comfortable in the chaos of life, being comfortable in the loss of meaning. And so the church becomes, at its best, for Hessert, preaching this life. And by preaching, what he means is he says, again, preaching in inverted commas means trying to convince you of a truth, something that is a reality. I'm trying to, through argumentation, kind of like convince you. But he says preaching in its deep sense is actually um, a performative discourse. To preach is to invite a reality. Just like uh, whenever you say, I now pronounce you man and wife. Traditionally, that was not describing a reality. That was bringing the reality into being. The two people weren't husband and wife until that was said. So the very speech act created what it said. So for preaching, Hessert says, when you preach Christ crucified, you're not making an argument about a reality. You're inviting people to experience something. So the church becomes this space where we, through the music and through the sermon and through the prayers, we begin to experience this reality, this form of life, this loss of meaning and power. And it's terrifying at first. So mostly it's a breath of fresh air, to be honest. You know, you're freed from the world and all of its demands upon you. But it can be terrifying. But actually, as we embrace that as a community, uh, what we find is that this is life-giving. That actually the body of death... In the Bible, it's called the body of death. The body of death is this guilt and condemnation that comes from lack of not being able to get to where you want to be. And we are incorporated into a body of life, which means we are freed from this body of death, this body of striving, this body of of guilt, where we internalize it or externalize it. And we experience something that is truly liberating and life-giving. Okay, there you go. I've talked for 35 minutes. I don't know if uh, you have any questions. We have four attendees now, so we've got a few people in the room. Um, Oh, there's the question box. Uh, Oh yeah, Maria says, um, can grace and forgiveness be interchangeable terms? Yeah, in this book, as you read it, you'll find it that every, it is very neat, maybe too neat, you know, like all these terms do interrelate and interconnect in various ways. And actually um, you could chart how they connect. So, you know, for Hesert, you know, guilt and condemnation and coveting, um, you know, and, and then scapegoating, you know, all of those are interconnected. And grace and forgiveness, um, and uh, what other terms does he use? Hope. These, the, all of these are interconnected. So I'm trying to think what you would say is the difference between grace and forgiveness. Um, both of these are ways of living outside the economy of the is and the ought. That's something the that way I say. It's like that we live with an economy. We think we have to do something to get something in return. And grace and forgiveness are both, yeah, maybe slightly different ways of saying you don't have to do anything. Now, like, there are, for example, some theologians who say that, like, one of the most radical teachings of Jesus, just purely historically, if you look at the text, was on the, the issue of forgiveness. And they said it's not because he forgave people who. You repented because everybody loves repentant sinners everybody loves that but rather it seemed like he forgave before anybody had to do anything the forgiveness was the very thing that came first and that this this act of forgiveness seemed to be the transforming power so yeah the these terms all inter interconnect and and basically he thinks that we often read the Bible from within a circle of reality. So all of these terms become weak and become small. Even like guilt becomes weak because guilt is, oh, I did something wrong and therefore I feel guilty. And he's like, no, that's not, that's not what's happening. The Bible is saying that guilt is a universal. It's something that is in, in the very structure of selfhood. Um I, you know, so he sees that that. What we've done is we've reduced all of these amazing terms down to very weak forms. um, And he's trying to rekindle the depth of these terms. Does anybody else have any questions or comments? Stick them in the the Q&A box. Um, Otherwise, what I will do is we'll finish this one early. I feel like this is like a, this seminar, as I say, was more of a recommendation to read this book that I've, that I've given you on Patreon. Um, and, uh, you know, wanting just to give you a little bit of a frame so that whenever you approach it, it'll kind of, I mean, it's easy enough to read, but, um, it, you know, it, it can, it can be a bit foreign at first. So this is just some kind of tips and the tips are basically, he's critiquing this idea of the circle of reality and meaning and power, and trying to see that Christianity offers some sort of alternative to that. Um, so have a read at it. Um, if you have any questions or comments, stick them on the Power, of, uh, power Theology Facebook page, um, and uh, we can kind of talk about it some more then. But other than that, I will say thanks for tuning in. As I say, I feel like this was kind of like a, the, the meaty Paro seminars are coming in the next few months and the Atheist Atonement is going to be a good one. I think if you're in Belfast, please come along. A weaponizing discontent will be, you know, that's where I really want to explore how we create communities that mobilize our discontent in positive ways. And then at Christmas, we will look at Advent with a little reference to the Titanic. All right. Thanks very much for tuning in. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.